verse 22. Let's stand together for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God said to Moses, and said to him, spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Thus far, the word of God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we do ask that as we are assembled before you, that you would capture our hearts and our minds, our affections, that we would be drawn to hear Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would hear Christ from the scriptures. As we look at this old book, things that happened many thousands of years ago, and yet they are still timeless truth for the instruction of your people in this day. Lord, open our hearts to understand the truths here. Loose the lips of our past, Lord, that you might use him for your glory and for our good. That in all these things, Christ would have the preeminence and be exalted. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I suspect most of you, if I had real certainty, I would say all of you, but... I don't know if I have that level of certainty, but I suspect most of you have had the experience of doing everything right, and yet it seems like everything goes wrong, right? This is particularly difficult when we are doing good works by faith in Christ for the glory of God. We do what's right. We were, we're walking according to, thinking according to what God has revealed in his word, and then they become particularly difficult, things like, Witnessing to an unconverted co-worker or a family member, only to have them curse you and mock God and walk away. Or applying biblical principles to training a child, only to have them blow up, tell you that they hate you, and slam the door as they leave. Or trying to overcome some besetting sin by abiding in Christ and using the means of grace, only to fall three steps back. We often are at a loss trying to figure out what God is doing. It was true for the prophet Jeremiah who faithfully preached the word of God. He was given a prophetic word from God in difficult days. What was the response of the people? They picked him up and they threw him into a miry pit. That is, children, a pit full of mud. It was true for Daniel who had been faithful to pray to the one true and living God when Nebuchadnezzar or not Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Medes and Persians, uh, had demanded that only prayers be made to him. And what did they do to Daniel? They picked him up and threw him into a pit of hungry lions. Or we might also consider the three Hebrew children under Nebuchadnezzar, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were faithfully serving both God and King Nebuchadnezzar. But when these three Hebrew men refused to worship the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, They picked them up and threw them into a furnace that had just been heated seven times hotter. Humanly speaking, we could say those are unsteady times. Even as we experience, things just seem out of kilter, off balance, unsteady. Uh, Things don't make sense. Things that are supposed to work don't work. We're, We're seeking to be faithful and it seems like everything runs awry. Arguably, we live in unsteady times. Now, we might be inclined to think that our times are more difficult than any other generation, but honestly, are they really? We look at the rebellion of so many in our nation today, young teens 
all the way to the White House. The economic house seems like a house of cards that's about to fall. We see growing hostility to morality and decency. Common sense is no longer common. It's almost impossible to find. Here we are seeking to walk obediently before the Lord, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly before our God. We pray, we vote our conscience, and yet nothing seems to slow the rush of our nation as they seek to throw themselves into the pit of insanity, imbecility, and lethality. And we look at the condition of the church in our day. We pray, we talk to others, and yet it seems as though many in the church are so eager to follow the world into that pit. Someone once said, we need to study history or we're going to be doomed to repeat it. I want to take and put that a little different. Let's think about the church. We need to study history to be reminded who God is. And to be reminded of what he has done, what he has promised to his people so that we do not fall down into a pit of despair. And so we're looking at this historical event that has timeless truths. We left off the text of Exodus 5 last week at a point. Things were not going well. Moses had been faithful. And it's like everything was just going badly. The uh, the uh, foremans of Pharaoh were beating the foremen of the Hebrews because they weren't delivering enough brick. Uh, they weren't meeting their quotas because... Pharaoh had taken away their straw because Moses had come in with the word of God, thus saith the Lord, let my people go. And it was just all a mess ever since. And so as we were wrapping up, we saw the Hebrew foreman come to Moses. And they had a few words for him. We want to return to this text for this passage teaches us things about God and ourselves and how to live for God's glory in uncertain times. We're going to use three main headings. Moses makes his appeal to the Lord. The Lord reminds Moses who he is, that is, who God is. And the Lord reminds Moses of his covenant. We could say he brings him back to the fundamentals, back to the foundations. We begin with Moses making his appeal. Last week, we heard that Moses had begun his ministry. He obeyed God. He spoke to Pharaoh Exactly as the Lord had told him to speak. He was a faithful ambassador. He didn't modify the, the message to, to suit his own assessment. He, he told Pharaoh what God told him to pray, to say. And then Pharaoh got angry and made the difficult labor for the Hebrew slaves harder. Remember, it's already hard. They're already groaning in their labor. And now it's even harder. They have even more to do. Same amount of bricks, but they've got to find the strong. The Hebrew foreman went to Pharaoh, we saw, and they complained. And what did he tell them? You're idle. You're idle. No compassion. No concern. And these men, bruised and bleeding from the beatings they had received from their Egyptian overlords, they go to Moses with their complaint. We see it there in verse 21. And they said, they said to them, that is to Moses and Aaron, let the Lord look on you and judge. Because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Well, Moses rightly goes from that point to the only one who can change things. Moses takes his complaint, his appeal to God. He comes with prayer. We see that that is how he speaks. Moses returned to the Lord and said, he comes to God and he prays. Now remember, back in chapter 3, verse 12, God had promised Moses in, in, this, uh, in the giving of this commission to, to go to Pharaoh, to go to Egypt and to lead his people out. God made a promise to him. He said he would be with him. And you see Moses respond by faith. He doesn't understand the circumstance. He doesn't know what's going on, but God has promised to be with him. And so Moses takes the matter to the Lord. He's just been uh, sternly rebuked, we might say, as the, the, the foremen say, the Lord judged between me and you. 
you know, who's really at fault here? Now, certainly Moses' prayer is not all um, stellar, we'll say. Uh, there's some faults in it, but he is right to go to the Lord. Notice in his address in verse 22, Moses returned to the covenant faithful Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, and he addresses him as Lord, capital O, I mean, capital L, little O-R-D. It's Adonai, probably a word you've heard. He, he speaks of him as the master. And in this sense, he's the master as the sovereign one. More often than not, when God is addressed in this way, he's being addressed as the sovereign God over all, the Lord of all. And so Moses speaks to him, Lord, sovereign one, why have you brought this trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? Well, God tells Moses tells God what he that he had did as he was told to do, and basically Moses said it didn't work. As a matter of fact, things are worse. The people are in trouble. Moses even goes so far as to say, God has brought this trouble on his people. You see that in the text. You, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? This is a very bold prayer. Moses speaks to the Lord with a confidence, but also perhaps an overboldness. We could say Moses' words are, are daring. But his prayer, in his prayer, as prayer should be, he's reminding God of what he has said. That's really the simple way to understand prayer. When we go to God with prayer, we should take his promises and say them back to him. And therefore, we need to know the word of God. We know the Word of God. God has made promises to the Word, and our prayers should be those very same things. You think about overcoming sin. Paul's words in Philippians, It is God who works in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. And so we say, Lord, Your promise is that You will work in me, that I would have a will, and You will give me the power. Lord, will You do that? Make that our prayer. So Moses comes And he comes here with two why questions. You see that there again in verse 22. First he says, why have you done this evil? Now your people are worse off. This has not turned out the way that you said it would. I'm not leading anybody anywhere. And then he says, why did you send me? Echoed in there, it's like, I told you to find someone else. Remember that whole discourse back and forth? God, you got the wrong guy. You need to find somebody else. But God prevailed and Moses obeyed. He went and now here's Moses man saying, back again, saying, why did you send me? This is though Moses thinks it depends on him. And then he blames God for it. Notice how he continues in verse 23. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Now that's all true. Moses' prayer is true. These are realities. But you see that Moses, as we've noted before, he's, he's still got an immature faith. Moses is growing. Moses knows something of God. He's heard about him. His things about God have been passed down from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then through the twelve tribes, even from his own parents. Things have been passed on, but Moses has only recently encountered God. He's encountered Him, as it were, face to face at the burning bush. He's just come to know the Lord. And and he, unlike any other in Israel at that time, knows about the Lord. And yet, Moses has much to learn about the Lord. And really, as we make our way through Exodus, we are going to be seeing Moses learn more about the Lord when? Through trials, through difficulties, through heartaches, through hardships. Moses will be growing. And my friends, that is no different for us. We learn about the Lord, even as we learn about ourselves, through heartaches, through difficulties, through troubled times. Basically, you could sum up what Moses said to God in his prayer. He says, I did my part. Why didn't you do your part? Well, Moses and the people had expectations because the Lord had promised to deliver them. And they thought it was up to them to write the script of how that was going to take place. Moses was faithful. He went to Pharaoh. He brought the message of the Lord. And it would seem from the way things are going that Moses seemed to think that just like, boom, it would happen, and on their way they would go. 
we'll come to understand more about what the Lord is doing here in a little bit. But Moses was not all wrong. Moses was right to appeal to the Lord. And indeed, what he did in, in, in these times that are now troubled, is that the, the Israelites are being pressed to do more with less, and, and the foreman had been beaten. Moses did what the others had not done. And you see a contrast between him and the Hebrew foreman. They went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the problem. Moses went to the Lord. The Lord overall. The sovereign one. The one who has solutions. The one who has answers. The one who has power. Moses returned to the one. Now you think about it. Those Hebrew foremen did not know the Lord. They knew about the Lord. They had heard about the Lord. But Moses knew the Lord. The Lord, the Lord has appeared to Moses, and, and Moses has had this encounter, and he's beginning to come understand something about him. As I said moments ago, he's going to be continued to grow in that. But Moses knew enough that he went to the Lord. This is a pattern, again, that we'll see right throughout the book of Exodus. This is not the first time that the Hebrew children complain and grumble. But we will see what Moses does. He goes to the Lord. Again and again, Moses goes to the Lord. And in doing this, Moses is learning to be the intercessor that he's called to be. He's serving as a priest for the people, communicating to them on God's behalf. And now, on the behalf of the people, he is communicating with God. This foreshadows the work of what our Lord Jesus Christ does for us. He makes intercession for us continually. And so when troubled times come, the things are unsteady, uncertain. Who should we turn to? Should we call our congressman? Maybe a place for that, but don't expect much. Should we call it an elder? God has provided help on our elders. But above all, we go to the Lord. And why do we go to the Lord? Because in him is help. Amen. But we won't go to the Lord if we don't know the Lord. We won't turn to the Lord if we just know about the Lord. We must know the Lord. We must know the Lord through the Lord Jesus Christ. God must be our Father because of the work of Christ. Then we will go to the Lord. You children, you know something about this. When you have troubles, who do you go to? You go to your mom and your daddy. You don't go to somebody else's mother and father. You, you go to your own mother and daddy. Why? You know them. You know they care. You know what they're capable of. You know that they'll do everything they can to help you. How much more so God, who reigns on high, the sovereign one. And so Moses has begun to be the mediator. He's begun to serve God and the people, to serve between God and the people. And Moses' words Though they are overboard, and, and there is an element, I think some commentators would acknowledge this, there's elements of sin in Moses' prayer. But isn't that true with all our prayers? And yet Moses goes to the right one. You see, we are so blessed that we pray to the Father as Jesus taught us to pray in Jesus' name. Because we go to the Father not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is and because we belong to Christ, we're united to Christ, we can go to God Almighty, the sovereign over all, and he is our father and he welcomes us. We go to him through the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we go to pray with the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Some of you will remember when we were in Romans chapter 8, how Paul speaks of the, the Holy Spirit who moves in our hearts, even at times when we do not have words. Our situation is so dark or dire or uncertain that we don't have the words, and yet the Spirit of the living God in us communicates with God, God with groanings too deep for words. This is what Christ has done at the cross. He has opened the way. He has forgiven our sins. He has cleansed our sins. He's made us right with God. He's removed the wrath of God. But He's brought us to the Father. All those things are necessary to bring us as sinners to the Father. And the Father would have us come to Him with everything. Let our requests be made known unto God. We were just hearing a little bit ago about the first commandment, to have no other gods before me. Sometimes we turn to other gods, don't we? 
We don't go to God with our troubles. We will see a pattern. I mentioned this before we move on. We'll see a pattern with the children of Israel right throughout the book of Exodus, under Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's consistent for so many of them. When things are tough, what do they do? They grumble and murmur to one another against God and Moses. And that is sin. And then Moses goes with bold prayers to God on behalf of the people, and he speaks to God about it. And God, or Moses comes to God, and honestly, he comes complaining. And that's right. We come to the one who can do so. Turning to our neighbor and grumbling about our situations is sinful. You will see that as we make our way through Exodus. Israel gets in trouble again and again because of their murmuring and their grumbling. But God does not rebuke Moses for coming with the complaints. Moses turns to the one who alone is able to do things about it. Well, he turns secondly to see how the Lord responds. The first thing we see is that the Lord responds to Moses by reminding him of who he is. That is, God reminds him that he is the capital L-O-R-D. He is the covenant faithful Lord. He reminds Moses that this is who he is serving and this is who has commissioned him. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Moses is writing these words sometime later, and he writes, The Lord, the covenant faithful sovereign one, said to me, What did he say? Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. The Lord is able to do what he said. Notice that this response of God really isn't different than what God told Moses at the burning bush. He told him then that Pharaoh would be hard-hearted, and that even further that he would harden Pharaoh's heart harder than it was in and of himself. But nonetheless, God was going to deliver them. And so Moses reminds him, I mean, God reminds Moses of this reality. Now we see in Moses' address to God, his complaint is punctuated with yous. Before we move on, look back at verse 22. The Lord, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, neither have you delivered your people at all. God now responds to Moses with eyes. Some of you students have written papers, uh, an English assignment, and you know, and maybe you get, you get down a roll and you're going, I this and I that and I so forth. They keep functional. I can remind you some papers like this. Maybe you wrote better than I did. And, you know, get it all marked up. It's like, no, no, no. You, you need to not focus on yourself so much. You need to find a way to tell a story other than being all about I, I, I. Right? And that's a very legitimate thing. But when it comes to God, it is absolutely right and righteous for God to say, I will. I am. And that's what we find in the text. There's a number of I wills here. We're going to look at a few of them. Next week we'll take up the rest of them. The Lord speaks graciously then when he speaks to this man. He remembers that Moses, as well as all of us, what are we? We're the dust of the earth, literally. God took up from the earth and formed man. Other places that were, were jars of clay. And the word that's used there's just a common pot. Not even one for honorable use. We're jars of clay. But God remind, remembers this. He knows that man is also a sinner. And so you see the Lord is very gracious to Moses. The first thing he tells him in his response is, he tells him he's going to deliver. He just reiterates what he's already said. I will deliver. It's going to happen. And then secondly, the Lord tells Moses about his covenant commitments, his covenant faithfulness. Things that demonstrate that he is the L-O-R-D, the covenant faithful Lord or sovereign one. Now, there's no new information here, but it's necessary for God to tell Moses again. And in that, what do we learn? 
God in another place says, I am the Lord and I change not. You know, the situation seems as though it's changed to Moses and, and to the Hebrews and he comes to the Lord as though some expectation that God's going to change the plan. God says, nothing's changed. When we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, what are we told about him? I have the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God does not change. And my friends, that gives us confidence. That gives us assurance. And this is what Moses needs to learn. Um, God hasn't changed the message. Moses calms, uh, God calms Moses with a clear statement that nothing has changed. And notice it's a little bit, um, well, it is ambiguous. Verse uh, 1, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Now, when? Well, now, is it like this moment? The word that's used there, it's in due time. It's according to my plan. Again, the sovereignty of God is caught up in that. It's going to happen. Moses, you will see it with your own eyes. Now you will see. You think about what's happened between this point of God saying, I'm going to deliver, and when Moses was told in the wilderness to go because God was going to deliver his people, what's happened? The, Moses has brought the message of God. It's been delivered to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has had the opportunity to submit to God. He's had the opportunity to acquiesce, to yield, and to obey. But Pharaoh has rejected the word of God. That's true for so many sinners down through the generations. They hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They hear God's call. Come to me and I will give you rest. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And sinners rebel. They reject. They refuse to obey. This is what Pharaoh has done. So God says he is going to act, and he's going to act with a strong hand. Now, there's two statements in here about a strong hand. For with a strong hand he will let you go. The New King James makes this quite clear. They've made it some under, they've interpreted with a strong hand, as though it's Pharaoh's hand. Uh, some translations have it that it's with God's strong hand, he will uh, force Pharaoh to let them go, and then with a strong hand he will drive he, Pharaoh, will drive them out. It's not immediately clear which, whether the strong hands are both about Pharaoh or one is about God and one is about Pharaoh. If it's both about Pharaoh, then it's just stated again. With a strong hand, he will let them go. But even in the language of the King James, you can see with a strong hand, that is God's strong hand. That's how I understand it. With God's strong hand upon Pharaoh, he will let them go. And then with his own strong hand, he's not just going to let them go. What does it say? He will drive them out of his land. God's going to do something with such a mighty hand that Pharaoh, who refused to let them go, will now drive them out. Go. Leave. And we'll see what that is. When we come to chapter 12, of course, it's the night when the death angel went throughout the whole land and struck the firstborn of all the Egyptians. God is going to act. It's clearly a statement of God's sovereignty. It is he who rules over the nations of man. And God with a strong hand will cause Pharaoh's strong hand then to drive Israel out. This is the same message that God gave to Moses back in chapter 3. Verse 19, God said to Moses at the bush, he says, But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. That's God's mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand. That's why I've interpreted the other verse this way because of the context. God says, I will strike out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst and after that. He will let you go. Now that Moses and the Hebrews have seen Pharaoh's response, what are they seeing? They've seen how strong Pharaoh's hand is. He just speaks. He says, no more strong. Gather it yourself. And it's so. There's nothing they can do about it. They can't change the situation. Pharaoh is the sovereign of this land. He's the king over this land. But as all kings of men are, there is a sovereign above them. Solomon speaks of this in Ecclesiastes. He says, you judges of the earth, recognize there's one over you. That is God. 
And that's what Pharaoh's going to find out about. Well, the Lord's response to Moses here was to encourage him. God is saying, you brought these charges against me with your you, you, you. God says, I'm still here. I'm still in control. And I'm still the one with all the power. My friends, that is true today. God's still here. He's still in control. And he's still the one with all the power. Well, some applications before we move to our last point. There are several lessons for Moses and Israel at this point. Indeed, there's lessons for us. Lessons for us. First is a lesson. God's ways are not our ways. He says that elsewhere. His ways are higher than those of the earth. We perceive it even in Corinthians how you know, the, the wise boast, and yet the wisdom of man is foolishness before God. God's ways are so much better. They're so much right, more righteous. They, they're faithful. They're true. But also see in the text, even with God telling Moses now, we see that God's timing is not the same of ours. Moses went. He gave the message. Expected action. We're not on the way yet, Lord. What's wrong? And assume that somehow God was failing. God's timing's not like ours. How often have you found that? You've prayed to the Lord about a matter, and you've persevered in it. That's to be commended. By the grace of God, you've persevered in it. And weeks, months, maybe years have gone by, and then the Lord answers right on time. In his time, he does answer. Moses needs to learn that God will deliver Israel according to his plan. And in order to bring glory to him. Some of you have been here long enough with me that you remember when we went through the book of Judges. Remember the theme? There was no king in Israel. Everybody did what seemed right in his own eyes. And so they did that, and so then God raised up a people to oppress them, much like here in the book of Exodus. And during that time of oppression, they cried out to God that he would deliver them. God heard their groanings. Remember, he is the covenant faithful Lord. And so he came and he acted. He raised up a judge. Well, there's the occasion when he raises up Gideon, a fearful man from a little clan and a little tribe. And God uses that weak man. That's the way of God. And so he says, all right, you're supposed to go out against these Midianites. There's hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of them out there. You're supposed to go out to battle, and and he gathers an army of 20,000. God says, that's too many. Now, if there was ever a time when he was like, boy, God's ways are not our ways. We're facing hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and God says, 20,000 is too many. And so he sends everybody home that's fearful. Now he's got 10,000. You might think Gideon say, okay, God will be happy with that, right? No, God says, it's too many. Have them in drink. Some will put their face right down in the stream and suck up the water. Others will scoop it up. Keep those guys. Now Gideon's got the army God wants him to have. 300. Why? Because God gives the victory. And God wanted them to understand he did it. It was nothing in them. As a matter of fact, God sends Gideon's army out with what? They're armed with trumpets. With pictures, and what else? Torches. They go out in the night. They hide the, t- the torches under the pitchers. And then when this command is given, they break the pitchers, they blast the trumpets, hold up the light, and God wreaks havoc on the Midianites. Remember Jethro, Moses' father-in-law was a Midianite. These Midianites and God causes chaos and, and they're dead and God delivers his people. And who could receive the glory? God alone. Well, you read about it. You find there's turmoil amongst the children of Israel over that one too. But God will have his victory his way. God gave victory to Gideon over two mighty kings, Orb and Zeb. And they secured the land on the east side of the Jordan River to be part of Israel's inheritance. And so God has told Moses, Pharaoh is not going to be easily persuaded. As a matter of fact, he's not going to be persuaded. Your words will do nothing. Even though you carry my words, they've accomplished nothing. Moses has already seen that. It's by my strong hand. Pharaoh's heart, his heart is hard. And I will harden it. According to his nature, I will harden it. That when the deliverance comes, it will be very clear who has brought the deliverance 
It won't be because of Moses' words. Remember, Moses was the man God selected because what? He was weak of the mouth. So he says, you need to send somebody else. I don't speak well. But God used this man with all his faults. That God would have the glory. Moses was but God's instrument. God's hand is able and mighty. Let that be an encouragement to us, brothers and sisters. I don't know if any of you are prone to think more highly of yourself than you ought. I guess we all are because the Scripture tells us not to do it. But we're ordinary people, ordinary means, simple people. If we're wise, we don't have great confidence in ourselves. Our confidence to be in the Lord, and He is able to use us to accomplish all His holy will. And so what we see here is the steadiness of God in unsteady times. It was another time when God was steady. When it came time for Jesus to go to the cross, the disciples, it looked like everything was falling apart. We were just there in John, remember? It looked like everything was falling apart. Everything was going wrong. But there was Jesus, the God-man, steady. As the Scripture said, His face set like flint as He went to Jerusalem, as He went to the cross. He never wavered. The writer of the book of Hebrews points to Jesus as an example but also as the strength for his people when they are living in unsteady times. Listen to what Hebrews says in chapter 12, 1 and 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, people of God who have gone before us, have seen the faithfulness of God, the steadiness of God, the writer goes on, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what? Rode into Jerusalem on a white stallion, all triumph over his foes? No, but for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and now has sat down at the right hand of God Most High. That's our high priest, that's our elder brother. That's our Redeemer. That's the one who loves us. He's the head of the church. He is the bridegroom who's coming for his church. We need not fear. God's promises will not fail. That brings us to the second part of God's reply to Moses. Third point the Lord reminds Moses of his covenant. Pick this up in verse 2. Notice that the Lord's message begins and ends with look at verse 2. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. It's not the first time Moses heard that. Look at verse 8 where this discourse from God ends. Last thing, I am the Lord. Punctuated right in the middle, verse 6, I am the Lord. God keeps reminding Moses of this name that He has given him. I am the Lord. I am the covenant faithful Lord. Moses is coming to understand that. The contrast between Moses and the Hebrew the foreman was because he knew the Lord. He didn't know Him well, but he knew Him. He had experienced the Lord at some level. And the Lord is underscoring this, I am that one. I am the covenant faithful Lord. It is very clear that God wants Moses to remember who He is and teach it to the people. This address, I am the Lord, reoccurs in a very same format or very similar. You look at the prophets when God comes to them, what does He say? I am the Lord. Look at Ezekiel's prophecy. There's a point in there where God is going on and on and on with truth. And He keeps saying, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Can we ever grow weary of that? Yeah, no. Do we lose sight of that? Yes. Do we need to be reminded? I am the Lord. Yes, we do. God is faithful and steady in all our days. I've been saying this over and over again in the sermon, but I just wanted to bring you back to that, remind you. When you see all caps, L-O-R-D, that is God's name. What's captured in that is how He has acted. We're going to come to that in just a moment. He is saying, I am the covenant faithful Adonai, the covenant sovereign one, the God over all. That is my name. And there is no other. We see right here in the text then that God recounts His covenant faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 2, I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, but by my name, the Lord, the covenant faithful Lord, I was not known to them. Now here's something important. If you look at the text, 
you will find in Genesis, I did this actually as we started this series. We went through, we found that capital L-O-R-D is used multiple times in Genesis. I think six times from verse um, uh, chapters 12 through 49, it's in there where this name is used. And even Abraham refers to the Lord God Almighty as L-O-R-D. So what is God saying here? Is, is God being dishonest or tricksy here? No. The word no, remember, is the idea of experientially. So it is the scripture talks about a man knowing his wife. He doesn't just know her name and things about her. There's an intimacy, a knowledge of experience. And that's how God is using the word know here. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they didn't know me. They hadn't experienced me as the covenant faithful Lord. They had known me as God Almighty. That's in the Hebrew, El Shaddai. The God, the blessings. The patriarchs didn't know God as the covenant faithful Lord of his faithfulness to do what he has promised. He blessed. Abraham went to his grave. What did he have in the land of Canaan? God promised to give it to him and his descendants. What did he have? A little parcel of land, a field he brought. For a coin he had earned. God didn't give it to him. You could say, well, God gave him the money. It's true, but it was not the promise of God. Abraham was looking for that. He didn't experience that covenant faithfulness of the Lord the way these people, his descendants, now are and will We sum it up this way. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew God as the promise maker. And that's a good way to know him. Are we not in that category? Has God made promises to us? Oh, yes, he has. In the great day of judgment, that last day when Jesus comes with a shout to the trumpet of God, and all the living shall be gathered before the Lord of hosts to be judged. What's he promised? To us sinners who are in Christ Jesus that we will be welcomed. That He shall openly acknowledge and acquit us because of His sacrifice on the cross. That in that moment, His blood shall speak for us. And we'll hear those most glorious words, enter in now to the rest prepared for you before the foundation of the earth. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We know this promise. God has made promises to us. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew God as the promise keeper. Now, at this time, 430 years after God had told Moses what was going, or Abraham what was going to happen, Moses and Israel saw, they experienced, they walked in, they walked out the covenant faithfulness of their God. That's exactly what God is saying in verses 4 through 5. I have also established my covenant with them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to what? To give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. This this is a history. This is what God promised. He has promised to give it to them. He's saying the promise is still true. And then there's something else about the promise, particularly to Abraham. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. God told Abraham that his descendants would go down into Egypt. And then for 400 years, they would be slaves in Egypt. And God promised Abraham something he did not see, he did not experience, that God would visit them and bring them out. He would lead them forth. Even as down through the scriptures, remember Genesis 3.15, what did God promise? There would be a seed of the woman implied, whom I will send, who will crush the head of the serpent, though he is bruised in the heel. We celebrate that. God has brought it to pass. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Though bruised on the heel on the cross, it was not possible that the grave should hold him. He arose victorious, triumphed over Satan. Sin, death, and hell are destroyed for God's people. Christ has triumphed victoriously to give us the promise of the covenant faithful God, eternal life in the Son. The Lord hears our groaning as his people. Here we see it thousands of years ago, roughly we'll say 3,000 years ago for round figures there. They're under great bondage. My friends understand this. The bondage, children think about this. You don't know what it is to be a slave. Every morning you wake up at the crack of dawn, you're sent to do something that's hard. And if you don't do what you're sent to do, there's a whip at your back or some beating or bruising That's what the children of Israel were enduring. They were in bondage. My friends, there's a bondage greater than that. 
sin. We've grown under sin. We've grown under the weight of it. Though we may not willingly acknowledge God, but those who are redeemed, now we acknowledge, I pray that you know, did you groan over your sin? You see your sin. You hate your sin. You despise your sin. You want to be free from your sin. You grow, you're grown because you keep returning to sin. But God hears our groaning. And in that day, He delivered them with His strong and mighty hand and He brought them out. We look now back when God has delivered us through the Lord Jesus Christ. You look at verse 4 as it begins. I have also established, verse 5, I have also heard. The, the repetition, it's, it's the, impact, the impact of it isn't just saying, oh, here's another thing also. No, the way it is in the Hebrew, the idea is, indeed, I, even I, is emphatic. Even I, I also have established my covenant. Even I have also heard the groaning. I am faithful. I have not departed. I also will do it. So we live in unsteady times. We live in uncertain times. There's an element in which we groan. We see the immorality. We see the decadence. We see the turning aside. We see even those in the church falling prey, falling into the trap of a progressivism, immorality, and lies of the evil one, and, and being let off all in the, for the, some banner of uh, cultural accommodation or cultural relativity or other such foolishness. God has sent us to preach Christ and Him crucified. We groan when we see what's happening in the church. This very week, your elders will be going to our general assembly. There's a sense that when this draws near, I think there's a certain sense that we kind of groan. Sometimes we come home from general assembly, we're groaning. But God is faithful. He's preserved our denomination for many things, and we look to him even for the future, even as we must surely do for the church as a whole. We, this little congregation of Christ, one little part of the church universal, the little C Catholic church. God is faithful to his church. He's faithful to every member of that church. Unsteady times, why? It's summed up real simply because of sin. God's people have been afflicted because of sin. Because all men are sinners, we are afflicted, we're surrounded with that. How much more so the Lord Jesus Christ, when he walked amongst men, saw the sin. The world, the flesh, and the devil are all sin against God, people, and yet God is still seated on high. He is the Lord, that is the sovereign one. He is the covenant faithful one. Surely things look like turmoil in the world around us, but that turmoil, hear me here, the turmoil you see is completely under the control of the reigning Jesus Christ. He's sovereign. He's firmly seated on his throne. When we look at our times, let us remember this account in Exodus. God is over it all, in it all, and through it all. Faithful. Our steady God will accomplish His purpose. There's no greater proof of this than when the Son of God came from heaven. Let's go back to that. Did, did it seem steady? Everything seemed certain? No. When, when the King of Glory came to earth in the Incarnation, he, he came to a young virgin named Mary. He was a, a child. This, this, his mother wasn't even married, which was tenuous at best. Things were unsteady because Herod was ruling over the land. Mary's betrothed was a carpenter, not some nobleman. Emmanuel came at a time that required then a young pregnant mother to travel because of a census issued by some politocrat in Rome. All seemed uncertain. It seemed like everything was against them. And so she and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem. There was no room for them. And so they found shelter with the animals. It just doesn't seem like a, a script that was well written, does it? Unsteady. 
And yet God was in every single detail. And so many of these things have been prophesied by God through the prophets. And it was all coming to pass. How could it come to pass? Because God is sovereign. Over all. In all and through all. And another time Jesus, as we saw in John, was brought before another ruler who also had a hard heart. Pilate. He was looking at an innocent man. Christ was brought before him. And he knew he was innocent. And yet his heart was hard. He was afraid of men. The Jews even threatened him. You're no friend of Caesar. So what did he do? He rejected the truth and he condemned him to death. Jesus was crucified. No doubt the eleven disciples that were still there figured it was all lost. What was unsteady leading up to that point seems now to collapse. It just everything's lost. It's all gone. It's all failed. We've wasted three years. What are we going to do now? Where shall we go? And yet there were words of truth echoing in their minds. They stayed in Jerusalem. God had not failed. And so these fishermen, tax collectors, they saw the will of God accomplished. God was at work. And he brought forth salvation with his strong hand. Does it look like a strong hand when the Son of God, the God-man, is nailed to a Roman cross? You could think that the... uh, the apostles might have had some of the thoughts of Moses. You know, God, what are you doing? What's going on? And yet God was faithful in it. It was there that the victory was won. Dear saints of the Lord, go and live in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ for the glory of God. Unsteady times, maybe by circumstances and appearance, but they're not unsteady. God is at work in them all. He's over them all. And so it is in such times that he shines forth most gloriously. I'm going to return to where we begin. I'm going to close out with our call to worship. In light of what we heard and said during our service of worship, hear these words again. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. And on you I wait all the day. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we look to you. We look to you now, Lord, and as we step out of this place and go back to our business, Lord, we pray that you would keep us constrained to look to you. When our eye becomes captured or distracted with some events of our day, Lord, may we remember what we've heard this morning. You are sovereign. You've made a covenant. And you will keep that covenant. And you have proved so thus far with the children of Israel of old during the time of the Exodus But at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the resurrection on that third morning, you have demonstrated you are faithful. You are steady. Lord, help us not to fear, but to rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.